Hello, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Swearing. I'll be your guide today. But before we get into the discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe. Click on the bell icon so you can be informed of new videos. Learn more at reasons.org and by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Hugh, I know you've got a discovery on the James from the James Webb Space Telescope, so why don't you go ahead and get us started today? Yeah, happy to do that, Jeff, and it just got uh, published in the latest edition of Astrophysical Journal Letters a few days ago, and uh, it's basically addressing uh, a common uh, objection that people hear about the Big Bang model, how the early observations, observations of early galaxies by the James Webb Space Telescope is posing an issue, at least for some Big Bang creation models. And so this team of astronomers said, hey, uh, we already have had great success uh, with a computer simulation program. Uh, it's called FIRE. Uh, mm -hmm. That's an acronym. <laughs> it stands for Feedback and Realistic Environments. Okay. And what they're doing is that they're looking at literally millions of galaxies and seeing if they can accurately simulate uh, what's happening with the history of those galaxies in terms of star formation mm -hmm. and the chemical abundances. And uh, they've had great success for the past 12 billion years of cosmic history. Um, so in other words, their simulations of what galaxies should look like and behave over the last 12 billion years matches what we can see with our Matches with what we can see. And, you know, that's the place where we've had good data mm -hmm. and where we haven't had good data is for the first two billion years of cosmic history. That's part of why James Webb went up was that's to right. get us that yeah. data. So, so James Webb is now <laughs> beginning to produce uh, that data. Right. Uh, but one of the things that uh, was the core of this thing that you see on the web, hey, James Webb is causing problems for the Big Bang model, is that the earliest galaxies in the universe uh, were too bright at ultraviolet wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And so this team said, well, we've had good success with our computer simulation. Let's try it on these early galaxies. And uh, they waited until they had a decent database. Mm -hmm. uh, they now have uh, good data on 25,000 galaxies uh, where we're looking back 13.1 to 13.5 uh, billion years ago. So, so this is data that we've never had until today. I mean, we just didn't right. have telescopes that allowed us to see this. Right, and uh, they had to wait for a few months because right. it took a while for the data to accumulate. Mm -hmm. But they said, we now have a decent database thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. And so these would be galaxies uh, within, say, the first uh, you know, 700 million years right, okay. of the, uh, after the birth of the universe. So they're able to explore this region where we're, quote, seeing a problem. Mm -hmm. Some of these early galaxies seem to be way brighter at ultraviolet wavelengths than what our standard Big Bang creation models would predict. So by way brighter, I mean, what is the problem with that? I mean, to me, I mean, on a first pass, you could say, okay, things are just brighter. It seems like there's got to be something more than just brighter there. Well, I mean, they address that in the paper saying uh, there's always been ways to deal with this and save the Big Bang models. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can just say, well, star formation was more aggressive okay. in that early epoch. Or maybe uh, what we're seeing is the firstborn stars are much more massive and numerous uh, than what we thought. That mm -hmm. would solve the problem. Uh, and that we really don't have to say, well, let's go look at 
uh, a distinctly different Big Bang model. They're saying that's one way to go, uh, but other ways to go is just to look at, hey, maybe mm -hmm. uh, we need to understand what the first star is really like. If they're massive and numerous, that would solve the problem, mm -hmm. uh, or if the star formation rate. But they said, let's first, before we go down those paths, let's tr use our computer simulation right. on this study. And so what they did is they looked so, at... So just a quick question before. Right. So the, it, in my understanding of what's kind of come out with the James Webb that is a problem, a lot of times what it's argued is that the galaxies are larger and more complex or more developed than what we thought. Is this getting at that or is that a separate problem that is being... They're actually, in their opening introduction, are saying a bigger issue for the Big Bang models is the ultraviolet brightness. We can okay. easily handle these okay. other issues that are being raised. After all... Uh, the brightest galaxies are the ones you're going to see first. Right. And we're going to need deep imaging by the James Webb to actually get the true statistical nature of these early galaxies. Okay. And they're basically saying so far, it seems to be demonstrating that, you know, the Big Bang models are right. Okay. The faint small galaxies are way more numerous than the big bright ones. Mm -hmm. And they said, we'll have better understanding of this. But their whole point is the biggest uh, challenge uh, for these uh, Big Bang models is the ultraviolet brightness of these early galaxies. Okay, they, and they, presumably seem, to have a overly bright galaxy, you've got to have, it's going to be a larger galaxy. Part of That's going to be part of what plays into that. Well, they're actually saying we're seeing this in all the early galaxies. Gotcha. They all okay. seem to be extra bright at ultraviolet wavelengths. Okay. And so they use their fire simulation, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, what's it called again? Yeah, feedback and realistic environments and said, you know, we've had great success for the first 12 billion years, let's see what's going on. And they tested two models, one in which star formation happens at a continuously constant rate, mm -hmm. and one in which it's bursty, which means you get short episodes where the star formation uh, rate is very aggressive, then you get periods where it's quiet. Mm -hmm. So those are the two models they looked at, and they okay. said, in both cases, you get the same number of stars forming. We're not playing with the star formation quantity. Mm -hmm. We're only playing with the way the stars form. Okay. Do they form in a continuous constant matter, or do they form in bursts? Mm -hmm. And what they were rather surprised to discover is that uh, the bursty model uh, gives you an ultraviolet excess that's 10 times greater than the steady model. Okay. And their old point is this challenge to Big Bang models was based on the assumption that the star formation rate during the first billion years of the existence of the universe was constant. And it's which, a, which that's kind of similar to the conclusion we draw from later galaxies, presumably. Actually, they're pointing out that's not the way it goes. Okay, all right. So, this so when they looked at the 12 billion years where they get this really good fit, what they said is, you know, our observations don't fit a continuous model. Star mm -hmm. formation tends to be uh, bursty. Mm -hmm. And so if we assume that the same situation is operating in the early universe, right, okay. it takes care of the problem, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because uh, they notice it has a dramatic impact on the ultraviolet brightness, whether star formation happens in short bursts or whether it's continuous. They're rather surprised, a factor of 10 difference. In the so, two. so is that just because when you've got a burst, you're just going to get a lot more star formation, which is going to drive up the luminosity of everything, or you tend to get more uh, ultraviolet light when stars are forming? Well, when you have these bursts, I mean, we see this later on in the universe. 
you know, we look at what are called starburst galaxies mm-hmm. where star formation is happening very aggressively. You get these big stars forming as well as lots mm-hmm. of small stars, but those big stars basically shower everything with ultraviolet radiation. Mm-hmm. The really big stars are very bright at ultraviolet wavelengths, but also affects the behavior of the small mass stars. And so they said, hey, uh, this is the way things seem to be in the latter 12 billion. If we assume it's the same for the first billion, it solves the problem. We don't have to appeal uh, to hyper-aggressive star formation. We can leave the star formation rates uh, the way they are, and uh, we don't need to appeal. So this fits all of our standard Big Bang models, and we don't have to appeal to saying, hey, the first stars are very big and very numerous. Mm-hmm. None of that is necessary. So, 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 is, so is the idea then when these galaxies are forming, when they start to coalesce, they go through, they just form a lot of stars very rapidly and then settle down to a more quiescent state? Yes. I and, mean, and that's what we see kind of later in the universe. I mean, that seems to me the way it would, ex- I, I would kind of half expect that in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you'd expect that you would get a more bursty uh, mm-hmm. star formation rate in the early universe because that's when the merging of galaxies is more, you know, the universe <coughs> right, yeah. hasn't expanded. So you expect that there would be a higher merging event of galaxies. And what we observe in the latter 12 billion years where you get the really aggressive starbursts mm-hmm. is when galaxies merge. And so you'd expect the merger rate to be even higher in the early universe. So that really fits mm-hmm. uh, what their computer simulation is demonstrating is going on. So in any given galaxy, you're going to get roughly the same number of stars formed, but instead of spreading it over out over a long period of time, it it all happens kind of initially and then settles down into a more quiescent state. Yeah. And that mirrors what we see in the going on in the universe today. We just don't see as many collisions, so there's not as many bursting galaxies. Well, I'll give you an example. Our galaxy is in a quiescent state. Right. Yes, it's forming stars, uh, but it's not forming stars at a rate that's anywhere like what we see in galaxies where they've had a recent merging event. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, hey, uh, this is the way it looks throughout the whole uh, history of the mm-hmm. universe, and we would predict that the merging rate uh, would gradually dissipate as the universe expands, which implies you're mm-hmm. going to get a higher merging rate in the first billion years than, say, five billion years later. Right. So You know, th- these sorts of discoveries, I guess, you know, I guess when I even heard about the problems that showed up, it's like there's a part of me that didn't think that was that big of a deal. I just there's been enough times in my scientific career. I think when the Hipparchos, I, I may be drawing a bl- or drawing the name wrong, but you know we start getting these high resolution uh, images of stars or data from stars, and we find out that there are stars that are older than the universe. It's like, okay, we know that can't be the case. And nobody looked at that and said, oh, our, our model of the universe is wrong. It just says, okay, there's more detail or we're pushing or our data gives us more detail than our kind of simple models out of the lack of data allowed us to do. It strikes me this is kind of in that class of we're getting to see something where we kind of assumed, okay, it's going to play out this way, simplest or a simple model. And it just turns out to be a little bit more complex model. And I, None well, of this seems I, that I remember to when me. they found that star that came in at 14 billion years, and they said, hey, this is older than the universe at 13.8 billion. And uh, on the web, people were saying, we got a problem. Mm-hmm. But if you actually looked at the research, it was 14.1 billion years, plus or minus 1 billion. 
the error bar was quite huge. Right, but but it's I mean there's a history of that. I mean right. these sorts of things are not uncommon in in if you if, if you're in the field it just happens pretty regularly. But the tone of what you see in the peer review literature is quite different from oh, the tone absolutely. that you see. No, and I think that's <laughs> no, why none articles. of these sorts of things bother me. I, I you know honestly one that's a little bit more problematic is you go out and you say all right, given the size of the cosmic microwave background fluctuations. Uh, there's a certain maximum size of structure that we see, and we see structures that are larger than that. And so, to my knowledge, that's still an unsolved problem. I mean, you know, we've got ideas about that, but it's unsolved. That's what, this but is what scientists love. It's like, how do we solve these problems? So. Well, there's a difference between unsolved and unsolvable. Fair point. Yes, because I mean, in terms of the example you just gave, there's lots of papers publishing saying this is how the, this right yeah this is how it could be solved. That's quite different from people saying, we've looked at all possibilities. There is no possible solution. Right. Now you really do have a problem, and you begin to question the model. But if you got four or five viable solutions to the problems, like let's research them and see which one solves mm -hmm. the problem. Well, and that strikes me. Maybe that's a, a kind of a good guide. And I think what I've intuitively learned to do is like when I see these problems, especially when they're from a new instrument going up, I've just learned that a whole lot of discovery happens simply because you're seeing things that you weren't able to before. So when a new instrument goes up and it says, oh, we're rewriting everything, it's like maybe take a step back and say, all right, what is it that's going on here? What are we finding that's new? And 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 do... Do the astronomers and do the scientists think, oh, this is a radical rewrite or what? And I, and I know at least some of this has played into there were places where astronomers were saying when the James Webb came up, oh, we have to rethink our galaxy evolution. But people, whether intentionally or not, misconstrued that as, oh, we got to rethink everything about the universe. Yeah, it's more like we have to adjust our galaxy formation models. If right. we knew all, all along <laughs> what had to happen even exactly, before yeah. James Webb went up. <laughs> And also, I think we need to tell people, astronomers like you and I, we get excited about these problems. Hey, we're going to learn something. And yeah, so, I mean, you know, just case in point. If you point. don't have any problems, you don't have a job, right? <laughs> I know. I, it's, <laughs> I, I think there's part of that that scientists are viewed as we always, you know, everything's always ro logical, rational, kind of wrapped everything up. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm working in dark matter. Uh, I mean, honestly, the the idea that dark matter was fairly prevalent is kind of in my scientific tenure, you know, kind of 30, 40 years. But this has been around for 80 years that the idea of dark matter is out there. We've been working on it for almost 80 years now and still don't have a solution to it, as in we know what kind of particle it is, that sort of thing. And, but that has been what is driving a lot of, hey, how can we get an understanding on this? It's, yeah, it's a hard problem, but the hard problem's and we People knew get all, really excited about it. And we knew all along it was going to be hard. I mean, yeah. trying to find dark matter particles is not easy. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I mean, dark energy plays in that same way. I right. mean, for as hard as dark matter might be, at least we think that might be a particle and we got ideas. You know, dark energy, that's a whole different ball of wax, but it's still a fun problem to work on. So. Right. So I don't think you're, we're going to be unemployed anytime soon. I don't think that's no. There's not. We are not going to run out of interesting problems to solve, even We're if you just stick with everything. astronomy. So. <laughs> okay, thanks, Jeff. Very good. So I'm going to shift a little bit of gears here. Uh, talk about uh, artificial intelligence, and more specifically, deep neural networks. And it was just an. Uh, Why don't you define for us what you mean by a deep neural network? Well, I'll get to that in just people a second. People think of a brain, okay? Well, <laughs> well, but that's kind of what you're getting at. There is there are. 
uh, these neural networks are saying, well, hey, the way the brain works is there's this connectivity and neurons are firing back and forth and there's stronger connections here, weaker connections other places. And so they're saying, all right, that's the way the brain processes. Can we build that sort of system into a computer? And it's modeled after that. It's not the, it, you know, the way they do it in computers is not the way our brains do it, but it's at least well, modeled after that. most people are used to computers calculating in a linear fashion. These neural networks do it in a parallel fashion where you have... Yes and no. I mean, it, it's parallel and it's more that the data comes in and it's run through this matrix of how are these things connected? I mean, it's doing lots of things and it's really saying rather than here's this path that you take, it's like there are lots of different things at play and there's lots of different things that can influence in a way it's a, a, of accounting for that. And the deep just means that there's a lot of it. I mean, you, know, you can have a, a neural network that's you know two or three nodes and only one or two deep, and that's or that's just a small neural network. We're Whereas these are you know eight, nine, ten, twelve networks, thousands of nodes in each in right, each layer. Right. And so, uh, as you can see, part of the challenge in that is that the more nodes you have and the more layers you have, the connections you have grow exponentially or or uh, log or. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. They, they grow geometrically instead of arithmetically. And so one of the challenges you run into is as we've gotten more of these deep neural networks running, we've got enough data to train them, they've gotten very good at saying, oh, that's an image of a dog, that's an image of a cat, that, that string of sounds is saying this, you know, and so it's, and I'm using that language kind of sloppily, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. But they're getting very good. These neural networks are getting very good at categorizing and processing input and giving an output that would say, okay, yeah, we agree with that. One of the things they're finding in, though, is that there are these idiosyncratic or, or you know, what I call invariant behaviors. And so just to kind of give us an idea of the task. So when we, we go out and say, all right, dogs, I can look at uh, pictures and say, okay, that's a dog. And if the dog's from the side, from the front, from the back, from the top, dark lighting, heavy, or you know, high lighting, low lighting, weird colored lighting, all of those sorts of things, I can still look at that if I'm functioning properly and see dog. And virtually all humans will look at that and see dog. And so what uh, these this particular set of researchers were looking at is that very often in, in order to do that kind of invariance, so regardless of the conditions, if it's a dog, we see dog, um, that's an invariance in there. And what these scientists are noting or these researchers are noting is that there are other types of invariances that show up in these models that are not nearly, that don't match the way humans do. Um, and particularly, they looked at both auditory and visual uh, representations and what they were able to do is say, all right, we're going to query, you know, what, what's going on here and, you know, sh show what's going on. But then at various stages in the uh, neural network, they're able to come up and say, okay, give me what they, they use the term a metamer of what you're talking about there. And so, you know, I, I don't know, I was trying to look for a good example of a metamer, but, you know, one of the ways you can do that is say you've got a ball that's shine, you know, a white ball. You can shine a yellow light on it and it will look yellow. Or you can shine 
certain kinds of red, green, and blue light on it, which are not yellow, and you still, your eyes will perceive it as the same way. So even though there's different conditions, you get the same response. And so in the context of this AI, what they're or of this neural network, what they're looking for is, given that you gave this response of cat or dog or whatever, what other situations, you're kind of querying the networks to say, give me another instance where you draw the same conclusion or, or where you get to the same activation of dog. And what they find is that it will produce stuff that is incomprehensible to humans. Uh, you know, one of the examples is, you know, got a picture of a dog and as they track through Mary's places, they'll, they'll show other pictures of a dog. And then at some point it'll just become this uh, kind of random selection of blue, green, and red pixels on it. But the network will say, this is the same thing. Whereas no human would look at that and say, you know, they'd look at this other image and say, what in the world is this? Whereas everything else here falls in the dog category. And so there's something about these neural networks that are very, the way they categorize and process is very different or something's distinct from the way humans do that. So they figure out what the problem was? Well, it's, it's, that, that's part of the question. Is that a problem? Is there really a distinction there? Or do we just not have that sufficient level of detail to figure out whether humans do that or not? And, they, and they're inclined to think it's actually a difference in the way the neural nets do. Because one of the things that is true of all of these neural nets is that they are trained to do things to mimic human behavior. So they're trained to say, okay, well, we've got all these images. Humans can process that and say, that's dog, that's cat, that's snow, whatever. And so they're training these neural networks to do the same thing. But in a very real sense, they're mimicking human behavior, not copying human behavior. Because the one thing that is true about you and I, when I look at that, I mean, I'm looking at dog, I'm not saying, okay, there are, you know, I'm not looking at a pixel by pixel, breaking it down, finding correlations. I, I am doing some level of that, but I'm looking at that and correlating that with there are ideas that flow in my head. So I have an idea of what a dog is and I'm asking, does that match dog? Does that match cat? Does that match? The neural network doesn't have these ideas of dog, cat. It just has string of input, string of output. Right. And so, and, and you know, I think that's an important distinction to remember and kind of my, my takeaway with all of this is not that, wow, AI is bad or neural networks. It's like they do some fascinating, really cool things, but they're just highlighting there are these differences between humans and machines. And the better the human machines get at mimicking our behavior, we're inclined to attribute human-type thought and emotions to them. But we just I think it's important to remember that they just are doing things differently. They're doing things similarly, but they're fundamentally operating differently because when you and I are processing sounds and visual cues, we're thinking in terms of thoughts and ideas, not input or string of data in, string of data out. Whereas all of these neural networks are thinking string of data in, string of data out, or they're not even thinking. It's like, given this thing, this correlates with this output. I'm thinking, ooh, that looks like a dog. Well, it kind of looks like a dog, but maybe it could be a cat. How could I distinguish those? I mean, there's a, just an entirely different process going on in my mind than there is in this neural network. Yeah, and I would expect that uh, where you're gonna get neural networks doing better, it's as if you cut off all the tangents. I mean, we humans can say dog, cat, airplane, whatever. I would imagine that this neural network would do a lot better if all I had to do 
is identify the dog breed. In other words, those in advance, I'm only looking at dog images. I don't have to worry about things that are not dogs, only dog images. Now you've narrowed the scope of speculation and tangent movement mm -hmm. of the AI, and my guess is it'll do a lot better saying, you know, this is a German Shepherd, right. this is a Chihuahua, uh, then if it's asked to say, tell me whether or not this is a dog or something else. No, and that's true. And I think these things are actually very good at reproducing, mimicking the human response. You know, that it, what we would say is dog is what they say is dog. What, what this particular group was looking at is now asking what else falls into that categorization. And there's lots of other things that are clearly not in that categorization as far as humans would say. That these, that these machines would, or these networks would do. One of the interesting things that flowed out of that, though, as they were looking, because different, different networks have these different invariant idiosyncrasies, if you will. And what they were, one of the things that they found is, you know, there were ways, there were processes to put in place which could uh, minimize some of that. I mean, especially in the middle stages, tends towards the later stages, uh, you know, the deeper into the process, it, it became harder to do. But one of the things that I found very interesting was that this, in, you know, these metamers that were uh, invariances that were unrecognizable by humans is that very often other models, by looking at other models, they could predict, or if the other model didn't recognize it, chances are the humans wouldn't recognize it either. And I mean, maybe I'm drawing too much of, a, of an inference here. But I just think of how humans operate, that humans don't operate in a vacuum. They operate in a community. We're designed to operate in community. That I wonder how much of these things we may actually do, but there's just enough interaction of me with my parents, me with my, my brothers, me with other people in the community. So where I would develop these things and say, oh, yes, this is all the same class. Somebody eventually just in that community of interaction, I will get... I would have put that in the same category, but it's wrong. And so that community aspect of training also comes into play here because every one of these are just being trained by, uh, or, you know, it's, it's kind of operating in isolation, if you will, as opposed to interacting with. Well, they use your analogy, Jeff. I mean, uh, if you're in a community of humans, we all have different databases and different mm -hmm. experiences, which means we're going to have a broader perspective right. than, say, what a machine would do that. After all, AI is limited by the databases that you give it. Well, so, at least current versions of AI right, are. Yeah, right. abso absolutely. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think I could see a couple of places where I think this social aspect is very interesting. I could also see where people would look at that and say, well, see, what you're, you know, what's going on there is that it takes the community to define what's right and wrong. It's not the actual data itself. And I think that's a misread of this. But what is true is that, you know, if, if this is truly a dog, you and I will agree. If we get out here and we disagree, some aspect of the community is going to help us decide which of, the, which of us is an error about this. It's not that dog becomes an undefined concept enough. It's that each of us had these idiosyncrasies, but in the context of community, we can refine them and draw them in or... or figure out how to deal with them. So we say, okay, in my way of looking, I'm not looking at it the way the community does, therefore I'm likely wrong and I need to adjust the way I evaluate, redefine my categories to make sure that they're properly drawn and accurately reflect reality. And so I, I thought that kind of communal 
aspect of this was interesting because in terms of the training, whether the neural net or the deep neural network was uh, trained, supervised or unsupervised, they developed these idiosyncrasies. So it isn't just a matter of being supervised. Supervised, it's almost like there needs to be some level of interaction with a, a group of AIs, if you will, or a group of neural nets. And again, I just that's so critical to the way humans develop well. It wouldn't surprise me if we're going to get human-like behavior, we need to model that aspect of it as well. Okay, sounds good. So I, I just this is kind of, a, you know, I see in these two discoveries that uh, as we continue to grow, one, we see that... Uh, what God has revealed in scripture about this universe, that we live in a Big Bang type universe and that we are people created in his image, that the more we study, we actually find evidence to support that, that the evidence yep. for that grows stronger. So, And we can produce new databases. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks. You appreciate okay. uh, your comments today. And I want to thank you for joining us and encourage you to join our Star, Cells, and God discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video so you get new content. Uh, subscribe for more content. We have new episodes released each Wednesday of Star, Cells, and God. They're available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe.